Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 100 of the Speaking Club podcast. Wow, 100 episodes. That's a massive milestone for me and the show. And I'd like to take a second to say some thank yous. First of all, thanks so much to you for listening. And thank you also to you if you've recommended the show to a friend, left a review or given feedback to me directly. It really makes a difference to me to know that the podcast is helping you move forward. I'd also like to thank all my guests who've been amazing. And finally, thanks to Emma and Claire on my team who helped me keep the show going. And I didn't want to let this moment go without a bit of a celebration, a bit of a hoo-ha and an acknowledgement of this achievement. So here we go. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So... If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled to be able to mark this 100th episode by getting one of the best storytellers around to join me. As you probably know by now, I believe that public speaking can only truly be effective in moving an audience if the speaker views themselves first and foremost as a storyteller. In this way, public speaking is really no different to other mediums like writing, comedy and filmmaking, where stories are also used to affect an audience. And that's why I like to bring in guests from those other arenas to give you ideas for making your own message more powerful. And today, I am chuffed to bits to be joined in this two-part show by film producer and director Mickey Lemley. Now, Mickey Lemley has been making feature films, television series and documentary specials since 1971. That's the year I was born. And his film and television works have been shown theatrically on television and at film festivals all around the world. He's covered such diverse topics as media manipulation, the first astronauts to land on the moon and two feature-length documentaries about the Dalai Lama. And in addition to his award-winning films, he was also a personal friend and student of none other than Joseph Campbell, the architect of modern storytelling, who I've mentioned more than a few times on the show before. And across these two episodes, we cover a wide range of topics, all of which I hope will give you food for thought about yourself or your life and your public speaking. Mickey takes us all over the globe, into our inner world and even outer space with the stories that he shares. And I hope that you love hearing them as much as I did. Now, before I head over to the interview, though, I wanted to just take a moment to say that if you are a speaker, a coach, a consultant, course creator, author or expert, and you're struggling to communicate your message in a way that's relatable and engages your audience, then I'd like to invite you to check out my free live masterclass. I'll be sharing my blueprint for creating a story-led talk 
that will enable you to leverage the full power of stories to make your message compelling, even if you're a left-brainer or an introvert, you don't think you're creative, don't worry about all that stuff. I'm going to show you how to overcome it. And I'll be sharing the key to unlocking your stories and your voice. Now, places are limited, but you can sign up to grab yours at thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass. Come and join me and make 2020 your year for taking massive steps forward in your speaking and storytelling. Right, let's get cracking with Mickey. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, Mickey Lemley. Nice to be here. Oh, I'm really looking forward to this. I always say that, but I especially am for this this interview because uh, you, oh, you've got a fantastic portfolio of work. And uh, first thing I want to ask you is how did you get into documentary filmmaking? Uh, I started when I was 18. Oh, right. Uh, I just started making movies because uh, I just really wanted to. I, I had this urge and... So halfway through college, um, I took a, uh, during the summer, I, I just had this irrepressible urge to learn how to make a movie. I was in American, doing American history in, in school. Um, and uh, so all the courses, the production courses in New York were filled at, at, at Columbia and NYU. But Columbia had a course in film writing. All right. So, so I, took, I took the course. I wrote two movies that summer. Uh-huh. Borrowed a friend's camera, went out and shot a movie. And when I returned to, to, to university that fall, there was a wonderful Irish, wonderful uh, human being setting up a film production class. And, and um, But it was restricted to seniors and graduate students in the theater department. And I was a junior in the American history department. So this didn't stop me. So I went to his office, knocked on the door and said, I understand you're setting up a, a film a production course, and I would like to be in it. And he said, well, you understand it's restricted. And I said, well, I heard that, but I've already made a movie, and I had it under my arm. Oh, and he wow. said, well, 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 we must see this. And so um, this was the old days before cassettes or you know any of that stuff. And so he had to take a 16-millimeter projector out of the closet and pull down the blinds and thread up the projector, and we watched my movie on the wall. And at the end of it, he said, okay, you're in the course. I said, is it because of the quality of the movie that I just showed you? He said, well, yeah, but more important, you have the one trait that's essential to any filmmaker, which is you can talk your way into places. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, that's a lovely story. And, and, and it's actually very true. I mean, um, more important than having aesthetic sensibilities is it's the ability to talk your way into places. And then at times when you're surrounded by people with guns, for instance, to be able to talk your way out of places. Oh wow! And um, and and we just did documentaries. Uh, you know, uh, he had a golden tongue. He he got all these people to hire us to do movies um, for the cost of the, the film stock and processing. And we 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 su- supplied the labor. He had the equipment. And so by the time two years later, when I graduated, I had movies on CBS, NBC, and PBS. Wow! I, we'd done films for the. Civil Rights Commission in Washington, the city of Philadelphia, a boys' school, you know, all these different kind of industrial-type documentary films. And um, and that was it. I was off and running. Wow. And do you think that his, his um, advice was correct in terms it, it, of that, that trait? It's, it's, it's definitely one of the important traits, is, is being able to convince people to 
give you their money for something that they don't need. I mean, nobody needs the movie, right? I mean, they do on on a spiritual level, but but not on. Nobody needs a movie like say you need a doctor if you have a brain tumor. Yeah. If you have a brain tumor, you go to the doctor. You say, "Get this out of there." I'll give you my house, right? <laughs> but, but but nobody says, you know, I really need a movie about the Dalai Lama. They don't say that. So you have to convince them to give you their money to make to to make the movie, wow. and you have to convince a lot of people to to get enough funding to do a film. And I'm going to ask you about that actually. One of the things I wanted to revisit is why documentaries. What was it about documentaries that attracted you to them? Uh, I guess I just started there, right? I mean, but a lot of Hollywood movies are just stupid. <laughs> no, no, they really are. Uh, you know, there, there's an occasional great one, but for the most part, they're half the half of the income comes from foreign sales, so that they're really about blowing things up and things that don't need a lot of language. Um, there, there's if something has been successful. They keep remaking the same movie, true, you know, yeah. uh, over and over, and it's 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 um, just very very difficult to get any movie made in the Hollywood system, but to get a, a good movie about something important is almost impossible. And so, the thing about documentaries is they're theoret- theory- theoretically uh, about reality. Yes, and not of course they're not uh, they're not all that way, but. Um, you know, and they're manipulated reality, but but at least they're about something real. Yeah, yeah. And when they're good, it's it's an exquisite art form. It, wow. it, 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 it's an exquisite art form. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what what drives you to choose the projects that you do? Um, all of, all of my movies are really about human transformation. Uh, a lot of people say they're spiritual, but I, I don't. I see them more as being about human transformation. The way I figure it is, um, without the possibility for human transformation and the evolution of consciousness, the world is going to be just as dreary tomorrow as it was today. But if you enter into the equation, the possibility for human transformation and the evolution of consciousness, then then we have a, a, a slim a slim bit of hope. And so in terms of that, so I understand, so everything has got to have that, that human transformation within it. But I guess there's a whole myriad of, of things that you could make a, a documentary film about. So let's, I mean, the first one that you, I guess, with outside of the school system, when you left uh, college, what was the first one you chose and why did you choose it? Uh, well, the early in my career, um, I, I made a movie. I made movies about artists and, you know, various things like that. Then I, I actually took a, got a day job at, at the public television station in Boston, WGBH, and I did things like um, documentaries, documentary series. Uh, the station would take half of the money you raised in overhead, and if you wanted to do your own series, you had to raise the money yourself. Wow! I figured. Well, if I'm going to raise the money, why give half of it to a structure that I don't want looking over my shoulder anyway? So I can, uh, a friend of mine and I did an independent series for PBS, for public television, about the media and how the media works and how it affects people and who controls it and that sort of thing. 
and um, it was very successful. Um, and then I just started, uh, you know, finding the, the movies that, that really I really wanted to make. And so I made the first one I made um, about transformation was about the men who went to the moon and what happened to them on their journeys and then what happened in the 20 years after in their lives. My assumption going into it was that anybody standing on another heavenly body and watching the earth rise, it's, it's that big, they could cover it with their thumb, it being sent up there and hopefully sent back in, in machines that were the lowest bidder in a government contract, that, that that would have to give you, you know, some sense of awe. And, um, and then when I started interviewing all these guys, half of them said it didn't affect them at all. They said, nah, we know what to expect. We've trained for so long. We went up, we did our jobs and came back. And then, then the question became, well, why not? What was, you know, why didn't it affect you? So, um, but my, again, my assumption going into the movie was that, that people would have a profound spiritual transformation. I'll just back up and say the, the challenge in making movies about uh, transformation is that by it, its nature, the human transformation is an internal event. Yes. Inside. Yes. I mean, if you film somebody getting enlightened, this is sort of what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, people can't see that. Mickey just closed his eyes, basically. <laughs> and meditated on emptiness for a minute. So, so transformation by its nature is an internal event. Film, by its nature, is about external action. Yes. And, and so, so my challenge over the last 30 years has been to find stories that are metaphoric of internal transformation, at the same time, very compelling stories on the surface level. And so like people going to the moon, on, the, on one level, it's about what I consider to be one of the two greatest achievements of our species, being able to go to the moon and bring people back again. Um, the second being the eradication of smallpox. And yet, it, it, it's, also an, it, so it's also an external event that you can make a film about. Yeah. And so what I try to do, and I don't mean to sound pretentious, to pick stories that are compelling on, on, the, on their own. Mm. And if somebody's ready, the film itself can become a transformative agent. So that if somebody is ready, by watching the film, they might get information to help them awaken. Again, I, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but, but I, I actually consciously try to do that. But it's hidden. It's, it, so if you're not ready, it, it just goes by and it's just a great story. You know, that's, that's probably more interesting than whatever else is on cable that night. And, and, and so that's, that's the challenge. Well, I completely buy into that. I mean, you know, I mean, in terms of, you know, I teach people speaking and storytelling and, I, and I'm a, a playwright as well. And there is that, and I always talk to my speakers about these two dimensions of a story, which is the, the external transformation, you know, and this is back to Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey that I've talked about. And, and obviously I, I want to talk a little bit more about with you. And then that internal transformation that, you know, there's some change in the person. So going back to that moon story, obviously, they went and they came back. So they got the prize and then they came back. How did you in that documentary um, show any internal transformation or, or was there any? Because, I mean, you had that assumption to start off with that wasn't validated, I suppose, as you were making it. So how did you pivot and what was the internal transformation? How did you show it? Well, I'll give you one example. Um, 
I filmed Jim Irwin, who is uh, who went to the moon. Yeah. Um, he came back. He had an experience of God on the moon. Oh. And and he came back and became a fundamentalist minister after he left NASA and spent the rest of his life looking for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey. Oh, wow. So I went with him to go find Noah's Ark. And, I was going to say, that's another follow-up, isn't it? <laughs> and, 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 and PBS wasn't going to pay for my trip. And I, I was speaking to the head of PBS. I said, well, what if he finds it? I'm going to cut to a radio and say Noah's Ark was found today by a person who had gone to the moon. So I, I was able to get enough funding to do that. Yeah, that's um, pretty Indiana Jones, isn't it? <laughs> like, that's like real it, life it, stuff. It's wild. That, that was when I, when I said earlier um, that sometimes you have to be able to talk your way out of places. Yeah. That was when I was surrounded by people with AK-47s and had to, to talk our way out of that. Oh, my goodness. Um, but um, you mentioned Joseph Campbell before. Um, he, he was a very good friend, and, um, and he, he was also a, an expert on Joyce. He wrote the... the uh, skeleton key to Finnegan's Wake. Right. And, and he said that Joyce would hide Easter eggs in all of his books. And by that he meant if somebody was ready to awaken, that there was information in, in there for them to help, to help them. If they weren't, they, they would just go over it. And, and, uh, and it was just a good story. Yeah. And, and since you, you, you said you teach storytelling, one of the astronauts, Edgar Mitchell, who just recently passed away, um, he was an MIT-trained uh, scientist. He was a fighter pilot. And when he left NASA after going to the moon, he started something called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which studied ESP, clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis, wow. all of this sort of thing. So he went through it, and, and, and he, he talked about it all the time. He said that he felt this overwhelming intelligence in the universe that that traditional uh spiritual uh, religious traditions couldn't hold um uh oh. so so he, he that's what he spent the rest of his life doing and one night uh after we got done filming and the crew went off to dinner and i was sitting with him having a beer i i said ed what's up you know you and rusty and some of the other alan some of the other guys had these profound transformative experiences and yet half the guys said it didn't affect them at all. It's, it's, it's like, what's up with that? He said, Mickey, it was like bouncing a ball off a wall. If you weren't open to the experience, you didn't have it. So my follow-up question was, um, Ed, did the guys that had the experience were open to it? Had they smoked pot before they went up? And he looked at me and said, Mickey, there's no way I can possibly talk to you about it. So... Um, but it was actually a very, very informative um, moment for me because it's like if somebody's not open, being open to awaken and transform, if you try to preach it to them, you're going to annoy them. And, and so I really got that from Ed. And there's actually an old Sufi expression that trying to teach someone to be happy is like trying to teach a pig to sing. It isn't going to work, and it's really going to annoy the pig. So, so I... In my movies, I never preach. I never, ever push anything. Um, and there are filmmakers who do. They'll have a, a strong opinion about health insurance or gun control or something like that. And they just keep uh, reiterating it and ridiculing people that disagree with them. Um, in my, I don't do that. I just offer it. 
And then, if so, as I said, if someone's open to it, it's there. The film itself can become, become a transformative agent. And if it's not, it, it's still a great story. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And again, so in terms of, you know, back, back to the sort of storytelling and speaking, and I also uh, teach it for marketing as well, a great story can create an epiphany, but you have to lead people to have that epiphany. You can't, you know, you can't tell them it. You can't get push, push it upon them. And that's really interesting in terms of your work that you, that you don't, you know, force your opinion onto them but how do you manage to stay so objective though or do you not have any sort of um preconceived opinion or that makes you even want to get into the project i mean it must be hard to stay completely objective mustn't it i'm not objective i'm not talking about objectivity i'm talking about <laughs> i'm talking about art yeah yeah you know? i mean i'm creating art and and that's the art form yeah you know i don't pretend to be Look, the only documentaries where there's no opinion are the, the, the surveillance cameras probably all over London and in the the 7-Elevens, you know? It's like, because yeah. nobody's making a choice about what, where to put the cameras or, you know, I mean, there's the their initial choice, but then nothing, I mean, that's objective documentarian. As soon as you move the camera or make an edit, you've made a decision, you've made a choice, you're manipulating the reality to, in order... And, and if your intentions are good, if, if they're pure, um, you try to manipulate reality to get to the, the, the fundamental truth right. as opposed to manipulate the audience. If, if, if you're going to try to manipulate the audience, what Joyce said was that it was pornography, regardless of what it was. If you try to get the audience to move in any, from one position to another position, whether it's advertising or a political polemic or, or anything like that. If you have an opinion you want other people to have, yeah. then that, that's pornography. The, the purpose of real art is to put people in, as Joyce said, into aesthetic arrest where they become aware of the fundamental cause of all things. Wow. That's so, deep stuff. <laughs> and it's a worthy undertaking to try to do that. I mean, anybody can make a polemic. Yeah. And if you and half the people are going to believe believe in it, and half the people not, you know, depending on what the, the point of view is. But yeah. but it's much more difficult to put someone in touch with the, the source of life. How so, do you f- feel about the way things are at the moment with the way that people are being manipulated? You know, you you sort of you know with the whole fake news thing, and you know, it's it's just seems to be. Uh, almost like um, uh, not a virus, a, a epidemic at the moment that you can't you can't get to the truth. And but I guess the question is: Is there a truth to get to? Or you know, it's perhaps there isn't. Well, there there, there is. I mean, um, on on one level, um, I think it's very scary. We're living in very scary times, and a lot of it comes right out of Goebbels' mm. handbook of how to manipulate masses. That, repeat the big lie long enough and people believe it. Yes. And it's very frightening. It's very yeah. frightening. Yeah. My, my whole, I did that whole series that I talked about, about the media. It's like, how mm. does the media work? How does it manipulate people? And once you become aware of it, then you become aware of the fact that someone's trying to manipulate you. And then you see how they do it. That's, that was the point of the series was to give people those tools. Mm. You know, so instead of saying, you know, fake news, 
you say, oh, look, they're trying to convince me that it's fake news. Yeah. Not that it is fake news. So just don't believe everything you see on television. It's sort of like coming out of the Matrix, in a sense. I don't know if you've seen that film, but, you know, that, that sort of bit awareness. Have you read a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday? I haven't. Oh, it's, it's, I guess it might be almost along in a similar vein, but how the media is manipulating you in the digital world. It's, it's really, I think you might enjoy it. I'm ready to down. He just basically blew the lid open. It sounds very, I'd like to check out your, your one that you did uh, to see, uh, to see your, your sort of take on it as well. Well, I did this, I did it with a partner in, um, it came out in 1980. And, and so, um, the last show in, in the series I did on the future, which was about what was going to happen with personal computers and cable um, and interactivity all joined together. So basically, I predicted the internet in 1980. And, you know, had I been smart, I would have invested in some of the companies that were doing that. But no, I was interested in art, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, but but we basically predicted what what some of the effects were going to be, and I, I said to my old partner recently, I said, you know, now is when we should be making a movie about the effects of media, because this this interactivity, you know, and this this digital stuff is going to have a far greater effect on the species than the than movable type, and and Gutenberg, I mean, it, it it's you know people scholars used to look at that as like a a turning point in the species evolution. This is going to so outstrip that. It's 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 profound and and um, it's in a way because it's so new and we're just you know we're still using it for games and looking at porn and whatever else yeah. people do that they're not aware of the the real effect on the species and and on the special the, the consciousness of the species, human consciousness. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend. I mean, he might actually be because he he wrote that book ten years ago, and sort of blew the lid off and and has and was kind of ostracized for for that. But he might be actually a quite good subject for the documentary in terms of what he did. But yeah, he, it's a, I definitely think you'd enjoy having a look at that. So, uh, yeah. but anyway, I better get back to uh, back to what I wanted to. We digressed. Um, yeah. I knew this would happen, so I knew it'd be fascinating talking to you. Okay, cool. So I, I'm interested, I mean, you, we touched on it a little bit in terms of the challenge of getting some of the projects made, but how difficult actually is it um, to get a project made and and what's the sort of lead time for doing something like, you know, I don't know, the Ararat thing or the, the stuff that you've done with the Dalai Lama, for instance? Um, I, I take a deep breath and swallow and think really hard before I do a film. Yeah. Because it, it, it involves a great deal of suffering. <laughs> um, you know, as I said before, um, nobody needs a film. So if I'm going to come to you and convince you to give me money, and these things cost a lot of money to do, um, wh- why should you make a movie about the Dalai Lama as opposed to trying to, to cure AIDS or, you know, or Ebola or help the homeless or... I mean, there's a lot of demand on people, people for their money. Yes. And, and, you know, I said, well, I'm going to save souls. And it's like, well, I think I'd rather, you know, save the people in South Sudan. Yes. And so, so the fundraising part is very difficult. 
especially if you want to do something that's new or different or that doesn't fit into something that's that's more commercial, say. So when you're doing that fundraising part, that pitch, are you stepping into the world that Joyce mentioned? Because obviously you you need to sell the story in order to get the funding to to tell that to, you know to sort of create that art form is that you stepping into that world and using story for for that outcome you know i i used to tell you, um one of the things i've learned being around some of these great minds like the dalai lama is that we we really believe what we tell ourselves and so i used to tell myself that i hated fundraising you know i was an artist and you know it was a necessary evil but i hated it so if you tell yourself you hate something, it makes it harder to make the phone calls that are necessary, right? Yeah. And one day I was in the middle of doing the film on Ramdas, and I said to myself, you know, there are people out there with with excess funds. I mean, more than they need, right? And and some of them might be, you know, in investments or whatever, where they basically make tens, hundreds of millions of dollars by moving paper from one side of their desk to the other, have the potential to be a go-between where I can have them become part of something bigger than themselves. Yes. Something that's going to, that's going to last in time. That's, that's bigger than themselves. And, um, uh, I'll digress. Um, a number of years ago, I saw a film about people who lived over a hundred to be over a hundred and they all had, they tried to find what did they have in common? And this will be a relief to some. It has nothing to do with diet and exercise <laughs> <laughs> or even not drinking. It's like the three things that they had in common was a basically optimistic outlook on life, <clears throat> um, an ability to deal with loss. Because if you live to over 100, most of the people you know are, are going to have died. Yeah. And the third was being part of something bigger than yourself. And whether it's a garden club or the, the library or, you know, a, a homeless shelter or a hospice or some, something. So I said to myself, I, I have the, the, the potential to help these people become part of something bigger than themselves. And, and some of my um, greatest investors, like at a dinner party, they don't talk about the $400 million they made the day before in, a, in some deal. They talk about the, the film and that they were part of it because that gives their life some meaning. And, and so uh, that's what, I, that's what I, I, I do, you know. You've reframed it. it. And I think and, you're right, actually. Sorry, go on, Mickey. It doesn't always work, but <laughs> at least I feel better. Yeah. Well, the thing, I think you're absolutely right because when you get to the point where you've got more money than you need, people's, you know, things switch to legacy then. And you want to have that legacy because, you know, it, money doesn't actually make you happy. Like, you know, it doesn't. And it's much, it's much more interesting to talk about something like that uh, than, you know, the money. So, yeah, that's, oh, that's really cool. I like that. Brilliant. Okay. So many of your films have won awards, but how do you personally measure their success? Is it the award or do you have some other barometer that you use? Yeah, no, the, the awards are nice just because you get to, you know, tell all the people who said you're never going to amount to very much. <laughs> off. Um, but but um, no, for me, success is if, if, if I tell a story 
that that moves an audience that they laugh they cry and at the end it changes their life for the better and and that's what i why i do what i do so when people you know come up so i love sitting with an audience and hear the laughter go through the audience then hear the, hear the tears start to go and then people come up to me after and say this movie changed my life i mean that's not bad Right. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. And is the story creation process different for documentaries over uh, fiction Do you, or is it exactly the same? It's a, it's a tricky question because I believe everything's a story. Yes. It, everything we tell ourselves is a story. Yeah. Uh, allow me a digression, if you will. Oh, go for it. Yep. And this is something that I've learned uh, from doing the last film about the Dalai Lama, who's for the last 25 years has been working with the leading neuroscientists on how the mind works. I mean, basically, um, Freudian psychiatry and psychology has been around for about 150 years. Tibetan psychology has been around for 200, for 2,500 years. And wow. they're really both in some, on a certain level, they're the same because it's trying to understand how the mind works. Yeah. And um, as I said earlier, we all believe that the voice inside of our head is telling us the truth. We all believe it. And, and it's not. It's just our mind projecting onto phenomenon. But if we tell ourselves that same story every day, and, and science has, said, has, told, has said that, and I'm not sure how they figured this out, 90% of the thoughts you have today you had yesterday. So we're all just walking around thinking the same thoughts over and over again and saying that's reality. So it's like, you know, whatever it is, it's like, oh, that person's a jerk, you know, and you see them the next day, and that person's a jerk. And by the third day, it's like, that person's a jerk. I'm really perceptive to see what a jerk that person is. You know? I always do that. And, 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 okay, so it's one thing if it's somebody waiting for the bus. It's another if it's your spouse or, or your kid you know, or your parent, you know, that becomes your reality because you told yourself that over and over and over again, and you believe the voice inside your head. And it's, it's really not the truth. It's just a projection onto, of your mind onto phenomenon. And the phenomenon may or may not be even neutral. And, and so we are all walking around in this little bubble telling ourselves the story of our lives, the story of me over and over and over again. And it, and, and it can be one that causes you to be chronically depressed or, you know, or, or whatever, whatever that story does. But the Tibetan Buddhists have, have shown and have the technology to point out that it really, it creates your reality. You, you have created your reality through the projection of your mind onto phenomenon. And if your reality includes a lot of suffering, it's possible that you're creating your own suffering and the, and the way out is to understand this. And that's what the Buddha came to teach. Basically he said, I've come to teach one thing and one thing only is like, what's the nature of suffering and how do you get out of it? And the way to get out of it. And here's the secret is through meditation. It's like to, to empty your mind of thought and watch the thoughts rising. And so of course, for those people who, who are listening, who've meditated, they know that you, you empty your mind of thought, you focus on your breath um, or whatever method you're using, 
and then thoughts will arise. That's the nature of the mind. But instead of engaging them, you just observe them and let them go. And, and, and then another thought will arise. You just observe it and let it go like clouds on a windy day. You just let it go. And then another thought arises, you just let it go. You observe it and let it go. And over time, what happens is you stop identifying with the thought or in either engaging the thought or, or identifying with it. So for instance, you don't go to the doctor and say, I am a sore throat, right? You say, yeah. I have a sore throat. Yeah. But you go to your shrink and you say, I'm really depressed or I am really angry. The, the emotion overtakes the entire self, the entire being. So instead of that, if you observe anger rising in you and you say that, oh, there's anger rising in me, there's a little bit of air around it to then decide, is it in my interest to actually strangle my spouse at this moment or, or would that be a bad idea, right? Yeah. So you put a little air around the, the impulse and then the reaction to it. But you're also observing how your mind is creating that reality. Like maybe they're not doing it. For instance, um, sometimes in, in New York, the, when you go on the subway, you have to go down some stairs, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to get someplace. And, you know, there's somebody with a cane and they're taking their, or a stroller, <laughs> and a baby, or, you know, and they're taking their, you know, forever to get down the stairs. And I'm trying to catch the train, which I hear approaching, right? And I get really pissed at that person and I get really angry at them. And, and I st I've learned to say to myself, they're not doing it to you, right? They're just trying to get down the stairs, just like I'm trying to get down the stairs. They're not doing it to me. So why, why should I be angry at them? Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so by putting a little bit of air around it, you have, then you can start having these choices. But the other thing that happens is, uh, that you start to identify with the witness to the thought and not the thought. And that's, that's the ticket is you start to see how your thoughts are creating your reality. And once you've, once you've done that, you have the potential to, to make choices. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had, uh, it wasn't until I was about 40, I had that epiphany that my mind wasn't me. Like I don't have, so I call mine Arnold because uh, I like to keep that healthy separation. And, and you're absolutely right. Like I, I love that the cloud stuff. I use trains myself. I imagine myself at a platform and each thought is a train coming along. And quite often we get on the train that's taking us to the wrong destination, but it's, yeah. it's about choosing which thought to, 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 to follow, but it absolutely having that, um, independence I, I'm a big fan of I, Eckhart Tolle and also Byron Katie is another one where I just you just need to maintain that that little bit of separation and realize that you you have the choice it's not you it's it's your mind and your you know ego or whatever you want to call it you, you know your your crock brain that's the oldest part of you that you know it's just it's fascinating stuff I think you're absolutely right yeah do you meditate Mickey yourself yeah uh, 20 minutes every morning cool and does that set you up for the day absolutely absolutely cool. it puts a baseline below which um i don't go yeah like, let's say wanting to strangle something <laughs> yeah i mean I, I, in some senses henry ford you know encapsulated this in a, in a little bit which is whether you think you can or you think you can't you're right and it's back you know back to what you said about your thoughts 
you know, cr- you know, create your reality, create what's possible for you, um, and, and so on. Really cool. Thank you for that, for sharing and, that. And the, the, the key thing is you believe what you tell yourself. Absolutely, yeah. So, so if you don't like the way things are going, tell yourself something different. Yeah. Make up I, another story. You know, I, and I, I alluded to this earlier. I, I honestly believe it's all story. Everything's a story. You know, um, because God so loved the earth, he gave his only begotten son. That's just a story. Yes. You know, we are the chosen people. That's just a story. You know, I mean, these are all just stories to help the help to comprehend reality or, or, or the, 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 the reality that you're in. But it's, we all do that. It's all story. Yeah. It's all just a story that we tell ourselves. And then collectively we tell ourselves these other stories and then it gets connected and, and, and more and more people believe it. And then you believe it because, well, everybody else believes it. I think you can tell how excited I am to chat with Mickey. I hope we've already given you some brain food, but there's more to come. So subscribe if you haven't already. And next week, you will be able to hear what Mickey learned from Joseph Campbell, his storytelling tips for you and lots more. In the meantime, go and check out Mickey's website, maybe even catch one of his films before next week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a couple of minutes to leave a review if you're enjoying the show too. And remember to book your spot on the Masterclass if you want to get the lowdown on my secret storytelling weapon. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Hey, if you're listening to this show because you want to start speaking or have a big talk or pitch coming up and you want to make it the best it can be, then you made the right choice because this podcast is the vehicle that can help you get there. But I wanted to tell you about something that will get you there even faster. Something that incorporates all the hacks, tools and tips I've picked up from my years in comedy, theatre, marketing and coaching. And that's my blueprint for creating and delivering a story-led talk that engages, inspires, and converts. And the best bit is that I'll be sharing my blueprint and the mindset hack that will help you overcome public speaking anxiety in a free webinar masterclass. To register, go to thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass. This puppy gives you the soup to nuts for creating powerful talks that connect with and engage your audience every time. So grab your place now. That's thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass.